You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good, good. Good to see you. Sounds like everybody's excited. I know why you're so excited this weekend. It's a holiday weekend. That, that might be it. Or maybe uh, college football started back yesterday. And, uh, you know, I think most teams, most of our state of Texas teams were pretty good yesterday. I'm not sure about Baylor, but they don't really matter anyway. So, um, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, it's a good weekend. Um, and I'm especially excited, not only holiday weekend and college football, but we are starting a new study, a new sermon series this morning in Jeremiah. Um, if you have your Bible open to the book of Jeremiah, we'll be in chapter 1. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Um, Jeremiah is a beast of a book. Uh, it is the second longest book of the Bible, second only to the, to the Psalms. It is dense. It is heavy. In fact, I have one of my pastor friends saw that we were starting a series on Jeremiah, and he texted me and he said, man, I thought I was crazy for preaching Job this fall. You're preaching Jeremiah. Um, it is an amazing book. It's hard, it's heavy, but it is so good, and it is so relevant to us. We need to study the Old Testament for one. One scholar said the Old Testament is like a pedestal in which the gospel sits on. It's the root from which it, it comes forth. So if we want to know the gospel more and know our God and what he's done and the salvation that he offers us, we need to study the Old Testament. But Jeremiah in particular is really, really relevant. Jeremiah was written in a time of kind of societal upheaval and international conflict was going on, and it was also... It was also written in a time where God's people were a bit, had been a bit lulled asleep, if you will. All the stuff that was going on around them in real time in human history, which we'll talk about in a moment, had lulled God's people, Israel, to sleep. There was spiritual apathy, there was idolatry, there was loss of focus on God and what he had called them to. And so it's really relevant for us. And so two things this morning as we jump into chapter 1 and we uh, begin this study on Jeremiah. Two things I hope to do. One, I just want to introduce you to the book. So open your Bible. If you have a Bible, open it. Have it in front of you. If you have it on your phone, um, turn on your Bible. That sounds weird to say that, but do that. Turn it on. Have it in front of you. I want to introduce you to the book and help you kind of get your bearings in this book. And then two, we're going to look particularly at God's call on Jeremiah's life and what it teaches us about God, who he is, and what he's like. So I'm excited to jump in. Let me pray for us. And then we'll look at our text today. Let's pray. God, we are a people that are bombarded by so many words. Our own words and our own thoughts, our own inner critic. God, the, the taskmaster in our own mind telling us of all the ways that we don't measure up or the things that we need to do or the things that we're lacking. The words of the people around us, the words of the culture, so many words, so much noise. But Lord, we open your book right now and we put our mind and our attention on your word. We need your word. Would you speak to us this morning through your word? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 1. We'll start with verses 1 through 3. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Anam, Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Jedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem 
in the fifth month. All right, let's stop for a second. This is usually probably part of the Bible that you skip. You're like, who are these names and these dates and these people, Jehovah who? You know, it's probably what you're thinking. What's going on here? This is usually the part that we skip, but it's actually really important. In a way, what you can think, how you can think of these first three verses is this is like God dropping a pin for us. How many of you drop a pin for your friends? Hey, meet me at P. Terry's. Which one? Boom, I drop a pin, right? This is like God dropping a pin for us, helping locate us in two ways. L- listen, this is important. Two ways. He's locating us in real human history. So where are we in the story of the world? Um, which, by the way, is what's so amazing about the Bible, is the Bible his- is historically true. And so he's locating us in real human history, And then he's also locating us in redemptive history. And what I mean by that is God's work in the world in real human history. And so a framework I want to give you as we move forward throughout the rest of this series is what I'll call top line, bottom line. All right, so I want you to think of it this way. Like imagine there are two horizontal lines running parallel to one another. Top line, bottom line. What we're going to see and what we see here and what we're going to see throughout the book is that God's going to give us the top line, and that's like what's happening in real human history. The bottom line is what's really going on under the surface of real human history. How is God working in real time, in real history, for his purposes, for his plan, willing redemption forward? That's what we mean when we say redemption history. How is God working to save the world from sin and all of its effects? And so there's this top line There's this bottom line that we're going to see. By the way, that's a good framework for you even as a Christian, as you live your Christian life. There's things that are happening in your life, circumstances, situations, things that are happening in the world, things that are going on around us in real history. But as Christians, we believe that there's a bottom line underneath it, that God is working all things for the praise of his glorious grace and for the good of his people, this top line, bottom line framework. And so we see it even in the introduction, the top line. Let me give you kind of some some history here. All right, so pay attention. Some of you are going to want to check out. You're like, I don't do history. This is important. Pay attention. Here's what's happening in real human history. Israel, God's covenant people, have years before experienced a civil war and and kind of this national split that's happened. The northern kingdom uh, was recently wiped out by Assyria in 722. And so only Judah remains in the south. And you could think of Assyria... Uh, and and the, the power of Assyria in this time in history, they were kind of like the big bully on the block, all right? They were you know, kind of conquering and overtaking nations, and so they wipe out the northern kingdom, and so Judah is, is all that remains in the south. And, uh, but at this point, around the 600s, Assyria kind of starts to wobble a bit, so the big bully on the block gets a little bit vulnerable, and so there are these other nations that are starting to lick their chops a bit and want to kind of come in and take some of their empire and take some of their regime, particularly Egypt and Babylon, the Egyptians and the Babylonians. And so this is kind of the scene. And during all of this, Josiah is the king that God has placed over Judah. We get introduced to him. Jeremiah's ministry begins in the reign of Josiah. For the most part, Josiah was actually a pretty good king. Like He really wanted to try and honor the Lord except he was a bit of a knucklehead, and he gets himself killed in Egypt in an unnecessary battle. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. So Josiah uh, gets killed, and then Jehoiakim is the next king over Judah whom Jeremiah ministers during his day. And Jehoiakim is just an absolute disaster. He hated Jeremiah. He hated his preaching. 
He willfully ignored God during his rule and reign. He was disastrous in his foreign policy, the decisions that he made. If, you've, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you probably know the stories of like Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, I've heard that story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that story if you're familiar with the Bible. All right, this is all under Jehoiakim's reign. He made some disastrous kind of flip-flopping of his loyalties between Egypt and Babylon. And it, that's what actually gets Daniel thrown in the lion's den, is, is Jehoiakim's uh, bad foreign policy. But he eventually gets himself killed because it's a bit of a disaster. And then Zedekiah, who wasn't much better, takes the throne. Uh, he didn't hate Jeremiah, but he didn't trust and obey God's word. And eventually what happens, what we see in verse 3, look back at verse 3. Eventually what happens, top line, what happens in history is that Judah is overtaken by the Babylonians. The Babylonians wipe them out and they go into exile. They, they are taken captive by the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians are the big bully on the block, so to speak. That's the top line. But what's the bottom line? What's God doing in all of this? Remember, God's dropping a pin for us to locate us both in history and in redemptive history. Remember, Israel was God's chosen people. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God makes a covenant with Abram. And he says, I, I will bless you. And through you and your offspring, I will bless what? The whole world, right? All the families of the earth. In other words, it's this promise all the way back to Genesis 12 that God is going to do something through Abraham and all, through his lineage and his descendants that would redeem or bless the whole world. And so this covenant that God makes with Abraham is really what we're talking about here. And Israel is to carry out this covenant. But here's the deal. Israel is a bit of a kind of up and down roller coaster. Sometimes they're faithful to God. Sometimes they're not. Most of the time, actually, they're not. You can think about the covenant this way. Israel was to um, love God and to live for God and to worship God alone. They were to de declare God's glory among the nations. And God wants to help them with this. So he gives them the law to help them out on their end of the deal. Maybe think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are given to Israel so that they would know how to live for God and reflect his glory among the nations so that God could work through them in the world. Deuteronomy spells out even more of the covenant. Hey, this is what it's supposed to look like so you can declare my glory among the nations. He gives them land, fertile land. He dwells among them by way of tabernacle. Eventually, even in temple, he gives his presence to them so that they can know what he's like and live with him and worship him and him alone. He gives them kings and priests. But some of the kings, like the ones we just talked about, they don't honor God. Instead, they look to the other nations for protection rather than looking to God. Um, the priests don't always minister to God's people out of a sincere heart. And so there's this kind of up and down where God is always faithful to his end of the covenant and to his people, but Israel seems to prove over and over and over again to be faithless. They, they betray the covenant. And it's in this time that we get to Jeremiah. And at this point, both top line and bottom line, in history and in God's purposes and plans, Israel is really shaky. And so God calls out Jeremiah to be his mouthpiece to speak for him. Look at verse 4. You survived the history lesson. Good job. Verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, there's something here that is... Really beautiful. First of all, this, these words are, are first and foremost unique to Jeremiah. They're unique to his calling and how God 
appointed him and wanted to use him as a prophet to the nations. He would speak for God, the bottom line, so that God could continue his purposes in the world, eventually leading to the coming of the Messiah, coming of Jesus. But there's even more in this. There are some principles here for us that are beautiful about God. There are some truths about him that we need to receive, and it's mainly this. God is sovereign over your life. Over your life. He is sovereign over your life. You can trust that. Maybe you need to receive that even now. That God knew you. That God formed you in your mother's womb. That your life, no matter the circumstances, is no accident. God is actually purposing something in your life. The question is, are you paying attention to it? Are you paying attention to God? Are you aware to God? He's sovereign over your life. In fact, every life is significant for that matter. Every life serves a purpose in the sovereign plan of God. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you've trusted in Jesus, you have been set apart for God's purposes. Your life has been redeemed for God's glory. God has saved you from sin and for his glory. And so there's some beauty here. There's some confidence that this ought to give us. That even in the midst of all of my circumstances, in the midst of my daily callings, kind of trying to work and make ends meet and deal with all the things I need to deal with, whatever that might be, that God knows you, that God is with you, that God is for you, that none of it is an accident, none of it is by mistake, that your kids, your work, all of it is a part of the sovereign plan of God for your life. Nothing is outside of his will and his knowledge for you. Maybe you just need to take a a deep drink of that. Just let that truth wash over your life. You know, for Jeremiah, despite the confidence that you would think this might give him, for God to say, I knew you, I called you, I formed you, I set you apart for this purpose, you would think that might give him a lot of confidence for what God was going to say next. It really doesn't. Jeremiah doesn't seem to be very thrilled about God's plan for his life. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. And there could be a dozen reasons where you're like, God, you know, that other person over there, like their calling looks a lot better. I wish that would have been mine. Maybe you're not thrilled about his plan for your life. Jeremiah certainly wasn't. And there are dozens of reasons for why you might not be excited. Let me tell you why Jeremiah wasn't too thrilled about God's calling on his life. First of all, he knew the role of a prophet, okay? The text tells us he was the son of a priest, that he grew up in a town that were just a few miles away from the temple in Jerusalem. So he knew the role of a prophet. The role of a prophet among Israel was kind of like, like what a DA does today. Not exactly, but kind of, like what a district attorney does today. All right. So the work of a prophet was to like speak for God and in a way almost prosecute God's case against Israel and say, hey, here's the ways in which you've sinned. Here's the ways in which you've broken God's law. See it and respond to it and repent and turn back to God. But Jeremiah also knew, not only was that his role that he was getting called to, hey, you're going to go prosecute my people, but he knew the spiritual state of Judah during this time, that there was so much sin, there was so much idolatry, there were these disastrous kings who did not uh, love God's law. Instead, they wanted the power of other nations rather than the protection of God. And so he knows that in a way, this is kind of like, he's saying, okay, this is the job I have to do, this is the audience I have to go to. Man, this is like you feeding me to the wolves, and that's kind of how I feel when my wife tells me it's my turn to put the kids to bed. You know, like, like it resonates with me. It's like, oh, this is, this is not going to be easy. This is, this is going to be hard. Look at what he says in verse 6. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I am only 
a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Verse 6, Jeremiah responds to this amazing calling God's put on his life, even at a young age. He says, me? Me, really? A prophet? I'm the son of a priest. I'm not a prophet. In other words, he's kind of saying, like, I'm still on my parents' insurance. Really? Like, this is, this is, this is a calling you've put on my life? I'm totally ill-equipped to walk this road, to step into this calling. But don't make the mistake of reading Jeremiah's response as him arguing with God. Really? Let me tell you what it really is, especially when you look at the Hebrew. It's really an expression of humility is what it is. It's like, God, I am utterly unable to do what you've asked me to do. It's not like he's afraid of it or is rebellious. He's just aware of like, like I, I can't do this, God. This is an impossible task. I don't want you to miss this. There's a humility in Jeremiah that is in fact going to make him very usable by God. See, the God of the Bible proves again and again and again to be one who gives grace to the humble, who opposes the proud but gives grace to the to the humble, one who is near to the brokenhearted, one who blesses the meek and the poor in spirit. This is the God of the Bible that we see over and over and over again. And maybe you are in a similar place right now in your life. Maybe you're in a similar place and you need to change the way that you view your weakness. You need to start to view your weakness and your limits and your inability the way that God views them. See, your weaknesses, your shortcomings, your failures, your limitations, your in-over-my-headness, it's actually what makes you very usable to God. It's actually the kind of stuff that God loves to work with. It's what he loves to paint with. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. These things do not make you a liability to him. They actually make you a perfect tool in his hand, right, wherever he's placed you. And I know that there might be some of you that are thinking like, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing with my life right now. I just feel completely lost. There are others of you who might be thinking, I don't know how to be a husband or a father. I feel like I am constantly failing. I don't know how to be a wife or a mother. I feel like I'm constantly failing. Some of you are maybe thinking, I can't manage all of my responsibilities right now. I am completely overwhelmed. Maybe you don't know what to do with your kids right now in this season that they're in, and you're just in an utter loss. You've read all the books. You've tried all the things, and your kids are just in a, maybe a rebellious stage, and you don't know what to do. There are maybe others of you that don't know how to make ends meet right now, and you're saying, God, I don't know what I'm going to do if you don't provide. Um, I get it. How many times I've said, Lord, I don't know how to lead a church in the middle of a pandemic. Hear me. It's this kind of honest, humble confession that God loves. It's this kind of honesty and brokenness that God loves from us. It's to say, to say these things is not to lack faith. To say, I don't know, I don't have enough, I'm not sure. I don't think I can do it. That's not to lack faith, actually. It's to express faith. God, I can't do what you've put in front of me without your help. When we do this, it actually unleashes God's grace in our lives. That's exactly what we see in verse 8. 
the sovereign God of the universe, he names the specifics of Jeremiah's fear, and then he promises him his presence. Look back at verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, do not be afraid of them. That word them, the, the Hebrew, it literally means, it could be literally translated, do not be afraid of their faces. Don't be afraid of their faces. He names the specifics of Jeremiah's fear. I know the people you're afraid of. I know exactly who you're thinking about. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. He corrects the lie that Jeremiah is believing with truth. He says, don't be afraid of them. I am with you to deliver you. See, fear is real, family, isn't it? Fear is real. So many people live so many days of their lives driven by fear, whether it's the fear of man. I'm afraid of what other people think of me. Uh, It's insecurities in our life. We fear people. Whether it's fear of failure I'm not going to step out in faith and have courage and live with courage because I'm afraid I'm going to fail. If I take that job or I uh, take this risk, I think I might fail, so I'm not going to do it. Some people fear change. I'm going to kind of do the same thing every day for the rest of my life because I'm afraid of change and uncertainty and what it might bring. Some people fear hard things. Some people fear suffering. Fear is one of the biggest obstacles to obedience to God in our lives. But I want to be clear about something. To feel fear is not sinful, okay? To, to feel fear, to kind of feel that rise up in you, whatever it might be, fear of man, your own insecurities, fear of change, fear of failure, fear of suffering, to feel fear is not sinful. Jesus feared the cross. Remember that? He who had no sin, he feared the cross. But to withhold obedience to God because of fear, that is to sin. Hebrews says, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. To withhold obedience because of fear is to sin. But what does God do when we bring our real fears to him? God replaces the lie of fear with a command of truth. Did you know that there is one clear command all over the Bible? Command, and it is do not fear. Don't be afraid. It's a command. It's not kind of a well wishes from God. It's a command. Don't be afraid. I am with you, he says, to deliver you. Jeremiah receives the promise of God's presence in the place of his fear. And then Jeremiah is commissioned by God. And this commissioning in verse 9 and 10, it's really going to set the trajectory for the rest of the book. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand, and he touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Two things here, verse 9 and 10. God is going to give him the source of his ministry and the scope of his ministry. What's the source? Well, the source of his ministry is God himself. He says, I've put my words in your mouth. And he even enacts it, which is what's a pretty powerful picture there. He touches him. He, uh, he, touches, he touches his mouth. He puts his hand on him. He says, these are my words. I'm going to put my words in your mouth. And so as we study this book over the next three months, I want to ask you, will you receive these words that we're going to see as God's words? God is going to speak. The question is, will we hear it? Will we listen? Will we actively listen? And will we listen without our own pre, uh, presuppositions? 
Will we really listen for the word of God? Not just listening for more Bible knowledge, not just listening to affirm my own biases, not just listening um, uh, for maybe other people. Sometimes we do that, we'll hear a sermon, we'll think, oh man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that today. They really needed that. Will we listen to the real words of God? Jeremiah is going to talk very clearly about how God feels about sin, how God feels about idolatry, how God feels about spiritual apathy, and he's speaking a word that's calling toward repentance so that God's people might be renewed. Will you really listen to what God has to say through this book? The source is God himself. And then verse 10, we're given the scope the scope of Jeremiah's calling, and it is massive. Uh, these words are not just for Judah, but for the nations. In other words, these words are for us. These words of Jeremiah are going to ripple and ripple and ripple. Remember, top line, bottom line, God is pulling a redemptive history forward through the words of Jeremiah. Remember that covenant thing that we talked about, how God made with Abraham, how God would work through uh, Israel to bless the world? All of that is in play here. God isn't going to give up on Israel. God isn't going to give up on his mission. But it's time for some significant renovation. And Jeremiah has been given the sledgehammer, so to speak. Jeremiah has been appointed to lead this renovation project among Israel. Um, I want to explain kind of the image that's going on in verse 10. Look back at verse 10 one more time. He says, I have set you, or I have appointed you to, um, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy to overthrow, to build, and to plant. I want to explain this imagery for a second. Israel, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, is often referred to as the vineyard of God. Okay? This is a primary metaphor, a primary theme that you see as God's speaking about his people as a vineyard throughout the Old Testament. It's given to help them understand their, their purpose. Israel was to be a fertile people. They were placed in a fertile land. They were to bear the good fruit of God's blessing. They were to display his glory and his grace to the nations, the way that they live for him, this vineyard, this fruitful, beautiful, useful vineyard. In fact, the, the temple of Solomon, which by the end of this book will be destroyed, the temple of Solomon actually even had a, a golden vineyard that, uh, that was put over the entrance into the sanctuary of the temple as a means of symbolism to remind God's people of their purpose, that they were to be fruitful and bear the fruit of God. <clears throat> but this vineyard, this people, it's no longer bearing fruit. This vineyard, this people, they are utterly sinful. This vineyard is diseased, and it's dry, and it's dead, and God has been working, trying to pull out the weeds and prune away the bad fruit through uh, kings and priests and law and word. But the problem is, is that it keeps growing back. Sin produces more sin. Idols get replaced with new idols. And so God now has sent Jeremiah, and he says, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow and to build and to plant. In other words, the vineyard must be plucked up and broken down. Jeremiah must first speak to all the dead fruit and sin that exists. And we'll see that to come in the chapters to come, Jeremiah's words as he's, as he's exposing the sin among Israel. But it's not enough just to expose it. God is also going to destroy and overthrow it. Jeremiah must next point to coming judgment and discipline. In fact, we'll, we'll see that God is going to use the Babylonians as a tiller, if you will, a tiller to, to, to tear down and to destroy 
the vineyard. Look at verses 13 through 16. He's going to clue Jeremiah in on this in verse 13 through 16. He gives Jeremiah two visions. In verse 11, we see this. The first vision is of an almond tree. And Jeremiah says, yes, I see it. I see the almond tree. The almond tree was the first tree that would bloom in the spring. And so he's basically what he's saying is it's time. It's time for you to go and to speak. And then he gives him a second vision. Look at verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne, set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against its walls all around and against all the cities of, Ju of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and have worshipped the works of their hands. God is saying, I will be disrespected by my own people no more. He will hand them over to their own foolishness and their own idolatry. Again, top line, bottom line. The Babylonians are coming, in other words. God is going to allow the Babylonians to come in and overtake and overthrow and destroy. And the, the temple will be in ruins. All of the people of Israel will go into Babylonian exile for 70 years. Top line, what is God saying? Bottom line is I'm using it and I'm allowing it in order to till up the hard, dead soil so that I can replant and rebuild a new vineyard. Do you see what Jeremiah's calling is pointing us to here? It's not without hope. It's not without hope. It never is with God. Hope is always in the equation with God. There is purpose even in the discipline. There is love even in God allowing the judgment. All of this so that he can build and plant a new vineyard. All of this because in God's mind and in God's heart, there will be a new vineyard where the sin of God's people are dealt with and removed for good. A new vineyard with a perfect source, with a true vine in which God's people could abide and bear fruit, where the nations could be called and grafted in. You see, Jeremiah's ministry, as hard as it would be, and it would be hard, verse 7 through 19 tells us, basically he says, gird up your loins, tighten up your belt, big boy. It's going to get hard, is basically what he says in 7 through 19. Uh, kings are going to come against you. The priests are going to come against you. All the people are going to turn on you and come against you. As hard as Jeremiah's ministry would be, his ministry was the beginning of this replanting work in which a new vineyard would come and a new vineyard would grow. You see, what is Jeremiah doing? What is God doing through Jeremiah? What is the book pointing us to? What is the prophet pointing us to? It's not only here to teach us about God, but it's to point us to Jesus. Do you see it? Have you made the connection yet? What does Jesus say in John 15? Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, if anyone's not planted their life in, in me, the true source, source the, the fertile soil, the, 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 the land of forgiveness and redemption and new life, if you don't abide in me, then you will be thrown away like a branch and wither. And the branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. Do you see what Jeremiah is pointing us to? 
the promise of hope in Jeremiah 1.10, it's both near and far. God would indeed deliver Israel from Babylonian captivity. It would take 70 years, but he would do it. But the word of Jeremiah, the word of God through Jeremiah in verse 10, the promise to rebuild and replant goes further still. God is pointing us to a new covenant that he would make in Jesus. Jesus, who like Jeremiah was appointed by the Father, who was sent into a chaotic world, who was sent to a sinful people, who would be the true and final voice of God. God would speak most clearly through his son, Jesus. Jesus would be fought against. He would be rejected. He would be killed by the hands of men, top line. But he would really be offering himself as a sacrifice for my sin and for your sin and for the sins of any who would give their allegiance to Jesus, bottom line. Jesus would take the full weight of God's judgment upon himself in order to purify for himself a new people once and for all. Think about what Jeremiah is pointing us to here. Jesus would have his own body broken down, plucked apart, destroyed, overthrown, tilled up in our place. And God would deliver him. God would raise him up so that a new people could be formed in him. A people who were rooted in the soil of forgiveness and freedom. People with new hearts and new spirits. A people with a new covenant of grace. Jesus says, I am the true vine. This morning and throughout this series, I want to invite you to see Jesus in Jeremiah. I want to invite you to come to Jesus Jeremiah is going to, throughout the rest of this book, he's going to point out a lot of sin. And one of the things that we're going to see is that the human heart is not very different than it was in our day. It's not very different than it was in Jeremiah's day. History is very different. Circumstances are very different. The human heart is the same apart from Christ. So he's going to point out our sin and our stubbornness and our idolatry and our foolishness and our spiritual apathy and our selfishness. And the invitation is going to be see it, hear it, repent. Jeremiah calls for repentance over a hundred times in this, in this book. He calls repent, turn around, hear the word of God over a hundred times. And I want to invite you as we hear Jeremiah's word that we would receive it, that we would see Jesus in it as the true vine for us, and that we would come to Jesus, that we would bring to Jesus this morning all of our sin, any of our unbelief, any of our fears, any of our stubbornness and resistance, that we would turn to him, that in him we would experience renewal, that we would experience forgiveness, that we would experience freedom, that we would in him bear fruit in our day for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this book and how it tells us who you are and what you're like and how you've acted in real human history, the promises that you've made and kept, the way that you've dealt with sinful, adulterous people, the way that you have worked to pour out even your discipline. The word tells us that you discipline your children because you love your children. You discipline us because you love us. And, but yet it's never without hope. And so we thank you for the book of Jeremiah. Lord, we set it, um, we offer it up to you and we say, God, as we learn it, as we read it, as we study it here on Sundays and in gospel communities, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would lead us to repentance. Romans tells us that it's in kindness that you lead us to repentance because you're kind and loving and you want to free us up from the sin and foolishness that we are ruining our lives with. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your call. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us even now today, whatever it is you're stirring in our hearts, in our minds, that we wouldn't just kind of set it aside. 
we would deal with it before you. We would come to you and receive your grace and your mercy. We'd renew our faith in you this morning. And over the course of this next three months as we study this book, Lord, would you renew us as a people? Renew us as a people. We might bear your fruit, might abide in the true vine, for apart from you, we can do nothing. We want to be used by you. We don't want to waste our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.